and welcome to another exciting episode of Skeptics and Seekers. I'm your host, David the Skeptic, and I'm joined by another guy. Hello, other guy. Who are you? <laughs> I'm Tom. Thomas J. Ord, my full name. would just call me Tom. All right, Tom. Uh, good, to, uh, good to meet you. You know, that, that name sounds familiar. You've been on Unbelievable recently, haven't you? I have, yeah, yeah. Uh, I've had a little... Um, I guess it's a debate with a guy named John Peckham on uh, the question of suffering. Yeah, that was that was actually my favorite uh, unbelievable episode in quite a long time. Oh man, uh, I'm happy yeah. to hear that. Yeah, I've been uh, I've been an unbelievable listener for a while. I've been on the show uh, uh, myself on one occasion. I think it's probably safe to say now. I, I think that my second occasion will air uh, next week. Uh, oh, so good. Happy What's Easter, the topic? Everybody. The Resurrection. Nice. Jonathan McClashey gets a dose of David the Skeptic. <laughs> Excellent. I'll look for it or listen for it, I should say. <laughs> we, are, we are both still recovering. Um, <laughs> it was a lot of fun, though. Uh, and, you know, always quite the honor to be asked to be on Unbelievable. But a show like the Easter episode, you know, that's, that's like the Super yeah, Bowl. You know? Yeah, exactly. And that's the topic people are going to be wondering about. Yeah, yeah. So um, it was can there. God, if God can raise Jesus from the dead, why can't he stop this coronavirus, right? Yeah, yeah. Well, <laughs> I, I tell you what, I was I was in my usual form in that show, whether that's good or bad. You're going to get a different David today, though. Um, okay. <laughs> I, so, I because I actually like you. Oh, well, that's good to hear. <laughs> actually, I, I like Jonathan just fine, too. <laughs> but you can't have a conversation with Jonathan McClatchy without it being a debate. It's going to be a debate. <laughs> so, um, uh, uh, and uh, Jonathan McClatchy is simply smarter than everybody. So he's he's going to be... It's going to be a debate. He's a better debater, and he's smarter. So I, I got these things going against me, <laughs> going, going in. And so, um, yeah, so uh, that should be fun. Uh, listeners, you can look forward to that. I think that there will probably be some after show and deconstruction uh, in the next week or so after that airs. So you can look forward to that. But today... Uh, Thomas J. Ord is here because his uh, conversation with Peckham, it was really an interesting uh, conversation. And having been a Christian for so much of my life, I feel like I've heard everything. Uh, and, <laughs> but but <coughs> both gentlemen, uh, both John and Thomas, managed to give me some new things uh, that sounded a little funny to my ear. And so that's always an interesting thing to be presented with. Uh, something new. And uh, so we were, uh, the conversation on Unbelievable, I do have that uh, linked uh, in the comments section of the blog, skepticsandseekers.squarespace.com. If you go there, uh, go into the comments section, you can just log in with your Discuss credentials. Uh, You'll see uh, a link of that show. You can just click it and play it right there if you haven't heard it. Um, but uh, the conversation was two views uh, of God's love and the problems of suffering and evil. Uh, did I get that right? Something yeah, close I think to that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I uh, so 
I am a, I'm a big fan of theodicies um, in, in general, and I, I tend to think that the problem of evil, first of all, the problem of suffering and the problem of evil, I think of those as two separate problems. They're often lumped together, though. Um, but I do think that those are uh, together the, the largest issues that Christians kind of have to deal with. Yeah, and uh, uh, a lot of a lot of Christians, such as uh, Thomas, <laughs> agrees with that. Justin uh, <laughs> tends to agree with that. It's it's a tough issue, and for a lot of people, such as uh, Bart Ehrman, uh, those are, those are reasons to uh, lose their faith or, or give up right. on their faith. And so, it's it's an issue, no matter what you think of it, that has to be taken seriously. Uh, and Thomas, I, I think that he presented uh, a, a very interesting picture uh, of God and, and theodicy. He he reminds me a little bit of Randall Rouser, not that they believe the same things, but I've often said of Randall that he has a, a type of faith uh, that as an atheist, I could get behind if I were if I were going to become a Christian again, I would I would look for that type of faith <laughs> yeah. um, and and that type of God. And I think that Thomas uh, also uh, presents a kind of God that atheists could get behind. <laughs> and uh, yeah. I, don't, I don't know if that I don't know how that makes you feel about that. <laughs> it makes me feel good. I mean, yeah, uh, yeah. having yeah. once been an atheist myself, I can I can relate. <laughs> yeah. So so with that uh, with that introduction in place, I just want to uh, give you a chance, Thomas, to introduce yourself uh, to the audience. Tell them uh, maybe a little bit about uh, your journey. In fact, I, I've got a list of questions. I'm just going to put the first three questions out there and let you tackle them in your introduction. So okay. uh, the first question is, why did you originally believe in God? The second question is, why did you stop believing in God? Okay. And the third question is, what convinced you to believe again? So uh, so <laughs> those are those are kind of the first three questions that come to mind, but also be sure to take this opportunity to plug any work that you're doing, uh, any books, uh, any um, links, websites, uh, you know, uh, can- canceled uh, um, appearances. <laughs> <laughs> uh, <laughs> take it away. Sure. Well, thanks so much for uh, the chance to have this conversation. Um, you know, it sounds like we might have similar backgrounds. I grew up uh, in a fairly conservative evangelical kind of church uh, in a little small community in Washington State. I, uh, my parents were very active in the church. The whole family was, you know. I uh, gave my heart to Jesus many times, to use the language of that time. Um, and I really took this stuff really seriously you still with me? I am still with you. I'm just I'm, being very, very quiet. Okay, you know what? For some reason, I got uh, in the middle of that sentence, I got a call from you as if we'd got disconnected. So, anyway. Well, actually, that's, that's probably just someone who's stolen my identity. Ignore that guy. Okay, I just clicked off. So, anyway, to continue... <laughs> um, I took it very seriously. I was involved in lots of evangelism kinds of things, you know, Bible quizzing, all that sort of thing. Um, and then in college, I took a course in philosophy of religion. And for the first time, I read really smart atheists, agnostics, people from other religious traditions. 
And, um, you know, I was someone who took religion really seriously. And so most of the time I could out argue everyone. But these people were smart and they had they said things that threw me for a loop. They kind of pulled the rug out from under my reasons to believe there was a God at all. And uh, for the sake of intellectual honesty, I just had to give up belief in God. In fact, I remember uh, picking up my fiance, who's now my wife, her getting in the car and me looking at her and saying, you know what, I just can't believe in God anymore. And for me, it wasn't, you know, like teenage rebellion or, you know, I was upset with the hypocrisy of some pastor or something. It was, it was really the intellectual questions, you know. Uh, and the problem of evil was one of those, not the only one, but one of them that led me to that place. I continued to work at that question for a while as an agnostic atheist. I don't know which, which is the best one to refer to my, uh, my state at the time. But I eventually came to think it was more plausible than not that there was a God. And two, initially at least, two uh, themes kind of brought me to that place. The first one is I, I wanted to believe there was something like ultimate meaning. And I realized I probably couldn't have that belief if there wasn't some ground for ultimate meaning that most theists call God. And the second one is I had these intuitions that I ought to be a loving person and that other people ought to be loving. And I couldn't make good sense of those intuitions if there wasn't some kind of what most people call God as the source or the spark for those. So um, those two things kind of brought me to the place where I thought, you know, I don't know that there's a God. In fact, today I'm not certain there's a God. I'm a skeptic in that sense for sure. But um, there seem to me some to be some reasons to think it's plausible that there's a God. And uh, and actually, I graduated and went. To, I was a ministry major at the time, so I, I interviewed for a job to be a pastor and a youth pastor, actually. And I remember the uh, the one of the interviews the. The pastor who was thinking about hiring me asked my views about Jesus. <laughs> you know, at that time, I believed that there was a God of love. I thought Jesus was pretty cool, and that was about it. You know, my theology was pretty thin. Hmm. So if I can uh, just pause you right there for a moment. Yeah. Um, so having been uh, a staunch Christian myself once upon a time, yeah. and... Um, uh, having uh, lost my faith so profoundly, I I cannot imagine uh, finding it again. It, it's yeah. not like I haven't uh, explored the issues as sincerely as possible, right? Uh, right. Since right. then, but I I can I can no more imagine coming to faith in God again than I can imagine coming to faith in Santa Claus again. I, I it <laughs> seems like a bridge uh, that you know, once crossed, can't be uncrossed. So I'm always fascinated uh, by stories like yours where, you know, there was something that brought you back. And uh, hopefully, speaking of bringing you back, maybe uh, hopefully I'll get to do that because I'm itching to talk about uh, the questions of meaning and the moral argument, which uh, seem to be the, the things that were so important to you. Uh, I'm just putting a pin in it. I understand that that's off topic for today, 
but I itch. <laughs> so uh, hopefully, hopefully uh, we'll get to scratch that uh, itch sometime. Uh, and since I've since I've gone ahead and uh, derailed your thought <laughs> process there for the moment, <laughs> let me just let me insert another question. I'll give the mic back to you. Okay. Um, just uh, just a couple of weeks ago, I uh, was talking to someone who insisted uh, that all Christians had some kind of veridical experience or encounter with God. Um, you know, if they were real Christians, that that's that's a part of it. And of course, I denied that uh, because I've never had that kind of experience. Um, and I just wanted to ask you. Uh, have have you ever had an experience, either in your first journey or your second journey, uh, that you would consider this was definitely an encounter with God, and it was so veridical that you that you're convinced of that to this day? No, I do think, however, I have encounters with God, but they're not the kind of thing that I know with beyond any shadow of a doubt this was God, and I could never deny it. Um, Rather, I think that all experiences with God that I have, and I, I suspect everyone, uh, this is sort of a metaphysical claim I'm going to put on the table now, I, ex- I suspect all experiences have some kind of creaturely or natural element to them, such that um, God can't unambiguously and in a crystal clear way act in a revelatory manner. So there's always going to be a mix of creaturely causes, we might say, and divine co- and uh, natural causes. And um, I'm always skeptical of someone who says, well, I know beyond a shadow of a doubt God did this or I had this experience. And I want to say, well, I bet if we talk to you long enough, we could point to some natural causation involved. Maybe it was the bad pizza from the night before or, you know, a lack of sleep. I'm not denying that God wasn't involved, but um, I think there's always natural causes alongside divine action. And so because of that, I'm skeptical of claims of absolute certainty on uh, those kinds of experiences. So you believe in divine action, but it's not the kind of divine action that you that can be verified. Not verified in the sense that it's a sufficient cause and there were no other causation involved. Right. Okay. All right. Well, that um, that makes that makes sense. Um, that also makes it hard for you to be cornered. Uh, <laughs> I'm not trying to corner you. But, yeah. But um, you know, it it kind of leaves the question uh, open. Then you know, it allows you to be able to say, "Yes, I believe that God, um, you know, worked in my life," but. Uh, yeah. Then if someone asks you for proof of that, you can say, no, I don't think it can be proven. Yeah, I, I don't think it can be proven in the usual sense of proving. So, uh, you know, I take this, I take the view that um, we're all in the process of uh, working through metaphysics. And metaphysics, as I see it, is trying to find ultimate explanations to make the best sense of reality we can. And some people have God in their metaphysics, other people don't. Uh, But for me, as I try to think about uh, ultimate reality and how to make sense of all things, the metaphysics that has God acting in a single-handed, determinative kind of way don't make a lot of sense to me. So um, I guess one way to say it is it allows me to get out of some 
some tricky questions or some hard problems. But for me, that's a, an advantage, not some sort of a trick on my sure. part. No, it's, it's a feature, <laughs> not a bug. I, I, I yeah. But so uh, allow me to ask a meta question about uh, the metaphysics then, uh, right. because for you, it's very important that you have an ultimate answer. And for me, it's it's not important uh, mm. to have an ultimate answer. And this is one of the things that flummoxes uh, Christians oftentimes when I talk to them. Yeah. I, um, I actually don't need uh, to know the meaning of life, the universe and everything. Uh, in order to live a happy life in this universe. In fact, I often say I, I, I no more need an ultimate answer to existential questions than my dog. Uh, <laughs> and, and my dog is uh, 16 years old, and, uh, and he's happy. You know, he's as happy as the, today as the day that I, that I got him. And uh, I'm, uh, I'll be 50 in about a week. Uh, and so uh, I'm happy too. <laughs> and I'm not entirely sure that I have a any greater grasp on the universe than my dog does in the grand scheme of things. And so why why is it so important for you to to have this sense of um, ultimate answer uh, to to yeah. things that may in fact not even have ultimate answers. How, how, how did you come to a place where you felt like you needed that? Yeah, I, I, I suspect I've probably always had that. Maybe it's a psychological flaw. I don't know, but uh, you know, I, I think even as a young, as a kid, I remember asking questions about the why questions, you know, the big questions of life and wanting to have, well, when I was younger, I wanted to have the right answer. Uh, now, I still want to have answers I think are plausible, uh, so I haven't given up that quest. But I don't think you're the only one, whether or not you believe in... I know some people who believe in God who aren't searching for ultimate answers either. It's just sort of kind of part of the way they live their lives. So it may be that my quest for ultimate meaning... Uh, is unique, or I mean, I'm sure other people do it too, but maybe I should say it's uh, something I and some people have, but not everybody has. Sure, I think that's I think that's fair. I mean, I I feel uh, so. <laughs> let me just be clear. I'm not a terribly humble guy, but <laughs> qu questions of ultimates, uh, you know, can kind of make me uh, a bit humble. I mean, I'm, I'm lactose intolerant. I have no idea why I'm lactose intolerant. Yeah, I, I, I certainly have no idea what makes the universe tick. I don't even know yeah. what makes my guts tick. I just know yeah. that if I don't drink <laughs> lactate milk, I'm going to suffer for a long time. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. I don't know how electricity works. I know that when I flip the light switch, the light comes on. If it doesn't, I can change the bulb. You know, I can, you know, flip switches in a little box uh, behind the gray door. Outside of that, I don't know. <laughs> How am I supposed to know the ultimate questions about the universe? I, it just uh, so uh, to me the the only ultimate question that I really care about is, uh, you know, in this time of unemployment, am I gonna am I gonna have enough month next month to pay rent? <laughs> so, yeah, <laughs> I don't. I I just um, I I can't think of too many times where I've gone to bed and had trouble sleeping because of. Uh, the the absence of ultimate an answers. Um, yeah. Now I have trouble sleeping, but it's not due to that. <laughs> so, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so um, that said, I I can appreciate that that might just be 
uh, one of those fundamental differences, not just between you and I, but possibly uh, one of the fundamental differences between atheists and believers. Um, I think so. Although, you know, I know a lot of people who believe in God who seem to believe in God mostly out of convention, habit, or sort of uh, cultural uh, background. Mm-hmm. And they don't seem to be asking the big questions that, that I care about. Uh, and they just kind of keep plugging along, believing in God, and don't think much of it. So uh, who knows? I'm, I don't, I'm not a psychologist. I, I like to study psychology, but uh, I don't have the answer for why I have this this quest or this urge, and not everyone else does. Is it is it fair to say that your first tour of duty in faith was more out of convention? Um, because I, I hear this a lot. Yes. I was a, I was a Christian because of my parents, because of my upbringing, because of whatever. But then I uh, went through a a time of crisis, and I developed a more robust faith built on something else. Is, is that yes. A, okay. So, yeah, I mean, I think that's not only fair to say about my life, but just about everybody on the planet. I mean, when you grow up, you kind of follow in the footsteps of your parents, unless you hated your parents or something, and then you have to come to a place where you have to decide what you think. I mean, maybe not everybody goes through that, but a lot of people do. Sure. And so that said, uh, how would you compare... Um, your your two faiths. Uh, let me ask that a, mm-hmm. a little bit differently. Um, how how is the God that you currently believe in different than the God that you first believed in? Well, probably the biggest difference, and the one that uh, came up in this conversation with John Peckham you were talking about earlier, is that I don't believe God is omnipotent. Um, uh, I can use language about God's power that people might understand, but uh, to put it more technically, I don't think God can single-handedly bring about any outcomes in the world. And the God I believed in when I grew up was, you know, as they sang in the Sunday school song, so big and so mighty, there's nothing that he cannot do. Um, and so I just assumed that God, if God wasn't fixing things, wasn't healing things, wasn't stopping evil, wasn't preventing the Holocaust. Well, if God can do anything, it must be a part of God's plan or something like that. So I had, you know, the kind of rationalizations that you hear other believers have for why doesn't God doesn't stop evil. Uh, the God I believe in now can't prevent evil single-handedly, is active, is influential, but can't do it single-handedly. The God I believe in now also can't know with absolute certainty what's going to happen in the future. So I, de- I deny what theologians usually call classic divine foreknowledge. I think God knows all the possibilities of what could happen, the probabilities even, but that's different from knowing with absolute certainty what's going to happen. So those are probably two I could go on to probably say a few others, but those are two big ones. Well, let's let's start with those. The, literally, the next thing on my list was tell me about God's power, and so I think you sensed where I was nudging, and you just you just went there. Um, <laughs> you're not going to be pushed; you're going to jump. <laughs> so, <laughs> I love it. <laughs> so, um, so I think this is uh, where uh, your 
particular theology becomes very interesting, uh, not just to me as a former Christian, but to uh, to current Christians as well. And since uh, you know a significant part of the audience of skeptics and seekers are Christians, um, I uh, I wanted to give you a chance to talk about that. Um, some some of the more popular. Um, apologetics, uh, such as the ontological argument, uh, or the, uh, if, if, if you can get someone to carry on from the cosmological, uh, argument, they depend on it, the idea of God having some definition of omnipotence and omniscience. Uh, he, he is, uh, the maximally great being an ultimate being, uh, and you know, we get a recitation of his omni, uh, attributes uh, mm-hmm. and uh, that sort of thing. Obviously, you you disagree with that, and so uh, can you just maybe talk a little bit about uh, how how you view God, what kind of being God is, because He is for you, I think, very different, even maybe at an ontological level, than the God of the average Christian who can do anything but simply won't your your god can't do anything so i i know that you must realize that and you you must get this question uh, a lot so i just wanted to give you a chance to talk about that a little bit yeah and and let me uh, before i give you my answer let me just be clear about uh, the kind of answer you would prefer i i could do a kind of theological biblical answer or i could do a more philosophical answer I'm kind of guessing that you would prefer the philosophical one. Shall I go that route? Um, well, my audience loves the philosophy. I'm actually a, a theo- theologian, counter-theologian. <laughs> okay. so, Maybe I'll mix them. Uh, I'll mix yeah. the two. <laughs> my, I tend to take every conversation about religion and turn it uh, toward theology. Okay. Um, and I usually let other people uh, have at the philosophy because, frankly, I'm not that good at the philosophy. But. <laughs> All right. Well, so. uh, how about uh, I'll start with the ontological argument and then I'll end in scripture. How's that sound? Sounds great. <laughs> so um, I think the ontological argument at its heart, which says that God is that then which nothing greater can be conceived or the maximally greatest being provides a formal definition of God that I can get on board with. The question is, how do we fill in the attributes of this greatest conceivable being? And you're exactly right that most theologians go quickly to omnipotence, omniscience, and these sort of omni-qualities, and they say, well, obviously, the, the greatest conceivable being would be able to do absolutely anything because, you know, that's, that's great. Um, I, however, begin with divine love. And I think of love as logically prior or primary or conceptually first in God's uh, nature or amongst the attributes, which means if we start with love, we might have to reconceive what God can and can't do in the world, God's power, what can't God can and can't know, etc. So I do think God is the maximally greatest being, conceivable being, but beginning with divine love thinking that God loves everyone and everything, and by love here I mean acts for the well-being of everyone and everything, then I think, okay, if that's the case, then is it, does it make sense to say that God can do anything? 
Now, of course, most theologians and philosophers want to say, no, God can't do what is logically impossible. God can't make 2 plus 2 equal 387 or make a married bachelor and all that sort of stuff. And I'm totally on board with denying those kind of logical contradictions. And then there are some theologians, I don't know if they're in the majority, I kind of doubt it, but they'll say things like this. Um, God also can't deny who God is. And here I could even throw a biblical passage at you. Uh, the Apostle Paul writes to Timothy and says, uh, you know, uh, when we are faithless, God remains faithful because God cannot deny himself. So there's theologians who've kind of picked up on that and said, you know, there's some things God can't do that go beyond the, lack, the, the logic problems because if God were to do them, then God wouldn't be God. God would deny God's own nature. Like, uh, you know, God necessarily exists, so God can't decide, you know, hey, it's been a good run, but tomorrow morning I'm just going to stop existing. Nope, God can't do that because it's God's nature to exist necessarily. Or, you know, someone might say God is omnipresent, and that's God's nature. Cause so God can't say, you know, I'm just not going to be in New Jersey next month. Um, you know, God's going to be in New Jersey because God's present to all creation. God hasn't been in New Jersey for a long time. <laughs> so, um, so my move is to say something like this, David. Um, love is comes logically first in God. I, in fact, I happen to think that the preponderance of biblical texts point to a God of love. I readily admit there are stories that paint God as unloving, but the overall drift, and I think the witness of God in Jesus Christ, suggests that God loves everyone and everything. So if that's the case, then how am I going to understand, let's say, the, the topic we've already touched on, the evil in the world. If God loves everyone and everything, then why wouldn't God prevent the unnecessary suffering, the pointless pain, the genuine evil? Well, as a kid, you know, I was attracted to the free will defense. I thought, well, yeah, God's not going to take away free will, otherwise we would be robots, so therefore there's my answer. But then I quickly realized that there's lots of unnecessary, at least apparently unnecessarily, suffering in the world that isn't caused by free will creatures, be they natural evils, diseases, etc. And so I realized, well, that free will defense is not going to get me everything I, I wanted. And I eventually came upon um, the metaphysics of Alfred North Whitehead. And that metaphysics helped me to think about reality and, and ontology in a very different way that made it possible for me to imagine God working and active at all levels of existence, from the most complex to the least complex, but being unable to control any aspect of existence from the most complex to the least complex. So to get back to my ontological argument, so the greatest conceivable being in my way of thinking is a being who loves perfectly everyone and all things, but can't control anyone or anything. Okay. Um, a lot of stuff on the table there, yeah, right? Yeah, there's, there's a lot of stuff. I, um, I wish I had taken notes. Um, but <laughs> just as an aside, uh, so the... After uh, I set this up uh, with the God's power thing, my very next 
question was, let's talk about God's love. And uh, Good. that's where you started your speech. You don't, you don't really need these notes. Um, <laughs> so, um, so here's, here's maybe an aside, uh, but it tickled my brain when you ran over it. You talked about uh, how God uh, has to uh, be powerful in, insofar as what is logically possible. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, two, two and two isn't five sort of thing. Right. Um, but I'm not entirely sure of that. There's a, there's a Christian on the board who, uh, uh, sometimes comes on the show, uh, to talk, Teddy, you know who you are. Um, <laughs> I'm not going to, I'm not going to name names, the bear. Um, but, uh, she would say that, uh, you, know, you can't even restrain God even that much. He can be, mm. uh, you know, logically contradictory if he wanted to. That's not beyond God. And I would, uh, I've been arguing with her back and forth about that, but I'm going to just acknowledge she might have a little bit of a point because uh, the the story of the feeding of the 4,000 and the 5,000 mm-hmm. uh, really does present a logical contradiction uh, two two fish and five loaves, or was it five fish and two loaves? <laughs> the Bible. Who reads it? Um, so um, you know that story though uh, says you know two plus five equals five thousand meals, mm-hmm. and that is logically contradictory for what we know about human beings. You you can't say that you fed five thousand people a satisfactory meal uh, from that. And and then say, well, but God is limited to what is not logically contradictory. I think that a lot of miracles are unbelievable precisely because they are logically contradictory. Um, and so that well, will just I, be one example. Yeah, let me let me respond to that. I think there is a difference between saying God can make a married bachelor and God can feed 5,000 with five loaves and two fishes. I think the first one is a logical contradiction. The second one is an ontological implausibility or <laughs> something like that. Uh, I think they're different categories. But let me talk about the logic first. Um, your friend who thinks that God can do what is illogical is bucking what almost every major Christian theologian has said in history. The only exception I can think of of someone who says that God can do what is logically impossible is Rene Descartes, Aquinas, Augustine, Wesley, Calvin. I mean, all down the line, they're all willing to say, nope, God can't do what is illogical. But almost all of those guys are going to say God can feed 5,000 with five loaves and two fishes. And they're going to say that's not a logical impossibility, but it's ontologically weird. And so they're going to say something like, well, God, in that case— did a miracle by, you know, bringing maybe, I don't know how it actually happened, but they might say, well, God created out of nothing enough food for 5,000 people out of these five loaves and two fish. I don't buy that argument, but they're going to make a different kind of move than logic. So just to say to your friend, um, the logic argument is something that almost every Christian theologian says God can't break the laws of logic. Now, the second interesting thing, I think, is this argument between people who say God can contradict God's nature and God can't. 
And in the history of philosophy, that's the argument between the side that is called the essentialist, that God can't deny God's essence, and the voluntarist, that God can just do anything that God wants to do. So John Calvin, for instance, is on the side of the voluntarist. God can do anything. Theoretically, God could decide to stop existing. Whereas Aquinas, John Wesley, they're on the essentialist side. They'll say, nope, there are things God can't do because to do would deny God's essence. So that's kind of a sidetrack. I probably shouldn't have gone down that road, no, but I no, just it's it's okay. This uh, this podcast is paved with rat holes. <laughs> <laughs> so, I love it. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I I I would I would maybe question some of those distinctions a little bit. I mean, I get it intellectually. I I get what they're saying. Yeah. Uh, but I you know when I examine it uh, with the eyes of uh, a naturalist, you know, that I, that I am, um, impossible is impossible. And so, um, you can say, well, one is in the category of logic and another is in the category of magic, (laughs) Yeah, but you know, magic is to me logically impossible. (laughs) So if if you, if you say, well, no, the, the loaves, that's not logically impossible, but it was magicked. You're, you're really just saying, well, that's impossible. (laughs) Yeah. Okay. I see what you're saying. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I mean, I think we're moving into the question of miracles, which I find totally fascinating. I am willing to set aside some miracles in scripture as being, uh, as not being historically accurate. And the five loaves and two fishes, I, I'm, it might be in this particular category. Um, other things in Scripture, though, that are miraculous, I'm willing to accept. So like healings, for instance. I, I don't have a real problem with that. But in every miracle that I think actually occurred, I don't think God alone brought about the good result. So my view of miracles requires some kind of either creaturely contribution or the conditions of creation being uh, appropriate or conducive to the miracles happening. Sure. And I, I'm going to go ahead and shock uh, at least half of my audience. Actually, I'm going to shock all, all of my audience uh, <laughs> by saying that um, I, I would not really vigorously argue that all of the miracles uh, recorded in the Bible are false. Um, yeah, I don't. I don't actually. I wouldn't say that they are miracles, but I wouldn't. I wouldn't claim that you know the the stories and the types of things described uh, are impossible. Somehow, uh, you know, we have people who uh, recover from psychosomatic uh, illnesses today, and mm-hmm. there are people who are very good at getting inside a person's head and freeing them. Uh, from mm-hmm. you know certain things, even even blindness in some cases, but you know yes. pain and uh, all all sorts of things. Uh, they can they can make a person stand up straighter and and walk better from yes. the power of suggestion. And so I, I think that a lot of things uh, that maybe ancient uh, quote unquote wonder workers did, they really did. I yeah. just I just wouldn't put them in the category of miracle. Yeah, I mean, it all comes down to how you define miracle, doesn't it? I mean, when I was writing one of my previous books, a more academic one, I I did a chapter on miracles and just decided I wanted to try to figure out how we might define them. 
And I was really surprised at the scholarly literature that there was just so little on miracles. I mean, most scholars are kind of picking up on David Hume's denial of miracles and his definition of miracles being interruptions of the laws of nature. But like, you know, most Christians I know, most biblical examples of evil, I mean, of, of miracles, they're not some sort of claims about the natural laws or anything like that. Yeah. So, um, right. so anyway, if there's time, I, I want to swing back around there. Okay, <laughs> so cool. All right. I've, I've All got right. I've got this list of no, 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 don't be. I've got this list of things com- being compiled right now uh, that are under the category. If there's time after these questions, I'd like to come back to that. All right. <laughs> so, I'll try not to go on rabbit trails. No, like no, so. please. It's, it's fine. I, and so I, I love talking about miracles. In fact, I have a question here about prayer uh, later on. So don't Good. worry. We'll, we'll, uh, we'll get there. Um, so I want, to, I want to continue on this theme of God's love, though. You, um, you uh, talked about that quite a bit. And um, I think... I think one of the questions that came to mind uh, is why would you think that love is the product of something uh, supernatural or meta- metaphysical? Why why could you not think that love is a perfectly natural human trait and that say evil is metaphysical? Uh, mm. You know, if you had to if you had to choose and say that the meta some metaphysical or supernatural reality was the cause for one thing. Why would you say it's love? Yeah, excellent. I mean, I I don't think that God alone can love. So I think creatures can love. In fact, I've even extend this to non-human creatures like dogs and elephants and etc. But um, this goes back to my our ontological argument. So. I have an intuition, and I think I, a lot of people share this intuition, that it's greater to be uh, acting to promote well-being than to be undermining well-being. So the greatest conceivable being would be one who's uh, going to be promoting well-being overall. Now, again, I don't think God's the only one capable of doing that. So for me, it's not God is good and loving and the rest of us are crap. It's God is good and loving, and God inspires and calls and empowers us to also be good and loving, but we're different from God because we don't always love. We don't have natures of love. We have to choose whether or not we're going to love, whereas God does so by nature. Okay, I'm gonna let that. I'm gonna let that sit there for the moment. Yeah, these are all these are all big things that could go forever on. Mark. <laughs> let me just say. I might come back to that too. <laughs> so, um, I want you. I want you uh, nudge the conversation about God's love, though, a little bit into something that you said on um, uh, the Unbelievable uh, podcast. Good. It's a okay. line that uh, is easily sound bitten and taken out of context uh, for uh, for humorous or polemical purposes. I have done so myself. So uh, I confess it, but many of my audience uh, has heard that conversation and has asked about this particular line. And so I just I want to uh, give you a chance to talk about it a little bit. I had some questions around it. You said uh, toward the end of the podcast uh, when uh, you and John were talking about cancer, uh, that God loves cells Mm -hmm. and uh, he uh, he seeks to cure them from 
uh, cancer as well. But I, I wanted to just deal with the God loves cells part of it because this is part of your idea that God loves everything. Yeah. Um, and so God loves humans, God loves dogs, God loves amoebas, God loves uh, probably atoms. Uh, you know, he loves all of his creation. Uh, but now, I just want to give you a chance to refine that a little bit. Would you say that he loves cells equally to human? Does he love every piece of the creation in exactly the same way that you can't distinguish one thing from the other? How How would you talk about that? Awesome question. And I'm getting this a lot right now because I think God loves the coronavirus. And people are saying, you got to be kidding me. How no, can you, God... You've given us a new soundbite. Let me do the analogy, and maybe folks can understand where I'm going with this if I start this kind of way. Most believers I know, most Christians, in fact, probably most atheists, but I'll, I'll just go with most believers, think that God loves the rapist but hates the rape. God loves the liar, but hates the lie. So we make this distinction between God loving the being, in this case a person who lies, and the activity, which is in most people's mind sinful or wrong, lying. At least in most cases we might think of exceptions. But anyway, so um, what if we take that same kind of uh, view and apply it to other creatures of reality? God loves dogs, But if dogs are capable of undermining well-being, God doesn't like it when dogs undermine overall well-being. Or cells. God loves cells. Now, to love a cell would be, just like to love a liar or a dog, would be to act for the well-being of the cell. And if that cell grows cancerous, God would want that that, uh, cell to be healed, to be non-cancerous. In the case of viruses... 99 plus percent of viruses in the world are helpful, are positive. Unfortunately, in society, whenever we talk about viruses, it's usually in a negative way. But the vast majority of viruses contribute to um, uh, complexity, genetic diversity, etc. It's only a very small percent that end up um, mutating or acting in ways that undermine overall well-being. Why, why can't we think about God's purposes for even viruses, cells, muscles, organs, dogs, dolphins, humans, that they act in ways that promote the good rather than undermine it, and therefore God calls, works, persuades, acts, heals, transforms, whatever, these beings in the world for good rather than evil? okay um all right let's unpack that a little bit okay um do i want i want to return to a question that i asked earlier about this just to get clarification before i really get started here would you say that god loves excuse me everything Equally, uh, I, I know oh, yeah. that, that I parents, to to, yeah. you know, they often talk about, you know, their children. For the record, I don't have any children. Uh, but uh, parents often um, say things like, well, you know, I love all of my children equally. I have one of three children. Um, and uh, my 
parents are still alive, they're still married, it's a very rare thing. Um, I'm sure that my parents have said such nonsense, um, but it can't be true in a practical way. I mean, they, they love all of their children, but... Um, you know, some of us are more pleasant <laughs> than, yes, than yes. others or, you know, some some cause uh, fewer heartaches than others. Some, you know, when you have when you have a 10 minute break, you want to spend time with one child and maybe not the other. Yes. <laughs> you yes, know, that's, yes. So, you know, it's it's a, yeah. a, a nice rhetorical tool to say, well, I love all of my children equally. And, you know, beyond children, people say, well, I love everybody. You can't love everybody. <laughs> you don't love everybody equally. You don't have that capacity. Uh, there are some people that you know uh, and have relationship with or, and are close to, and some people that you don't know and do not have relationship with. And when it comes right down to it, you have the ability to save one and not the other. Uh, you know, we, we find out very quickly who you love more. And so I'm not denying the rhetorical uh, usefulness of the statement, but I'm, I'm pressing you to really uh, examine the idea that God loves a cell the same way that he loves a human. Yeah, I'm, I'm happy you're pressing me on that because I forgot to address that in my previous comment. So I think there's two important issues for us to, at least for me, to work through on this. The first one is what we mean by love, how one would define it. And I've actually written a scholarly book with the boring title, Defining Love. So this is my definition real briefly. To love is to act intentionally in response to others, to promote overall well-being. So love, as I've defined it there, has as its goal to promote well-being, the well-being of others. So oftentimes when we use the word love, we we use it in kind of a like kind of a way. So, you know, if I say I love my kids, three kids, I have three daughters, if I love them equally, if that means I like them all in the exact same way, well, that's just not the case, as you point out in your illustration. Did you want to mention on air which one you like now? <laughs> it's up to no, you. I, don't I think just that. thought I'd give that opportunity. Okay, go ahead. <laughs> but it is the case that I want the well-being of my three daughters. And equally, you know, I guess I do theoretically equally, I want the well-being of all three of them. But this gets to my second issue. And that is the kind of love I express for anyone, we'll use my three daughters here in this example, is going to be different depending on who they are and where they're at in their own life. For instance, my oldest daughter just had a, well, a year and a half ago had a child, so I'm a grandfather now. The kind of or forms of love I can express for her are going to be different from my other two daughters who don't have children. So in one sense, I want to say, in, in the general theoretical sense, I act for the well-being of all my kids equally in the sense that, you know, I'm not saying one is I care about their well-being more than the others. But it is the case that I like certain traits about each of them that I don't like about the others. And it's the case that sometimes the forms or the expressions of love I have for each one is going to be different because they're different people, they have different needs, they have different histories, etc. Now, let's apply that to God. One of the differences between God and me is that I think God is present to all creation. 
So I don't have the ability to, to uh, promote the well-being of the cells of somebody in Mexico City right now, because at least not directly, maybe indirectly, but not directly. Whereas God is present to that person and to me simultaneously. God is also, I think, present to cells, organs, muscles, human societies, dolphins, dogs, etc., so God, being omnipresent, has the capacity to act for the well-being of everyone and everything. But I don't think God likes what the coronavirus is doing right now. I don't think God likes what the President of the United States is doing right now, to get political for a moment. So God can like some of the things we're doing and not like others, but act to promote the well-being of all, including Cells that grow cancerous by acting to promote their well-being to become non-cancerous and also um, anything else in reality. Okay, so um, so that gets us to intervention. Good. Uh, you, okay. you've, you've mentioned this uh, once or twice now that I know that this is an important uh, theme uh, for you. Uh, so God's love is a non-controlling love. Uh, right. which means that he does not unilaterally in, in uh he, he does not unilaterally uh intervene and act uh on a thing without cooperation. We'll talk about that cooperation here in a minute, but I just I just want to explore this idea of in- intervention because it seems to me that um God is an interventionist god again by definition in this by the same people who define God as being all powerful. His interventionist nature seems to be uh, fairly uh, well agreed upon by Christians. And so tell me more about your thoughts about how God intervenes or uh, doesn't intervene and, uh, you know, why you why you've come to that uh, in a way that's that seems to be different from uh, most Christians. Yeah, I really do not like that word intervene. And uh, there are two ways I hear it used amongst Christians or Muslims, in any sort of, I'll just say, believers. There's two ways I hear it used. And one way I think that all believers ought to reject that understanding of intervention. The other way I think they ought to also, but I can understand why they they use the word. So the first one, the word intervene sounds to me like God is entering into coming into, the the Latin actually says this, (laughs) intervene, to come into something from the outside. And boy, I think that just about the vast majority of people who believe in God are going to say God is present to all things, not jumping in from outside, to use a little more technical language. Uh, Christians don't think that the universe is causally um, um, closed they're going to say that God is a necessary cause in all things. God, the, the traditional language would be God sustains all things. So I think everybody ought to reject interventionist language if by intervention we mean something like David Hume seems to suggest that God enters into a situation as if God wasn't already present there in the first place. The second view of intervention or use of the word intervention is the one of the controlling kind of nature, that God single-handedly does something. God acts as a sufficient cause to bring about some result. And that's the one I'm also rejecting, and that is the one that makes me different from most people. 
because most people, well, there's a certain number of, uh, let's say, we'll just concentrate on Christians for a moment. There's a certain moment, number of Christians who are of a more Calvinist bent who think that God controls everything, that free will is an illusion, that chance and luck are illusions, and God is just orchestrating the whole thing. But the most of the people I hang out with don't believe that. They think we have free will and chance. You know, when they're playing Monopoly, they don't think it's been predetermined and God is deciding everything. They think, you know, there's real agency and indeterminacy in the world. But what they think is that occasionally God will single-handedly bring about some result. Maybe they'll call it a miracle or whatever, uh, but God has the capacity to on occasion jump in and bring about results all alone. And that view I'm also rejecting. I don't think God has that kind of ability, that kind of power. Uh, I will say God can't control anyone or anything. Okay, and just to be clear, when you say uh, he doesn't have that kind of power, you're not saying he has that kind of power but doesn't do it because it would be wrong. You're saying he couldn't do it. Exactly. That's a very important point. Lots of folks say God won't prevent evil, or at least not won't most of the time. God could, but God chooses not to. We, we usually call that voluntary divine self-limitation, and I'm strongly rejecting that view. I think God's nature prevents God from controlling anyone or anything. Okay, so let's let's look at maybe a classic example of where you would expect someone loving to intervene. Mm. Um, so if if you happen upon uh, someone, you happen upon two people, and one of them is clearly attacking the other person, mm-hmm. uh, if it's within your power to do so, mm. uh, you as uh, just an empathetic human being would intervene on behalf of the person being attacked. Right. Uh, you would you would not. Th- you would not, um, you know, rest in, in, in paralyzed indecision thinking, well, you know, both of these are, are people who need to be loved. And, uh, <laughs> you know, I need to act in the best interest of both the attacker and the attacked. And maybe the best thing to do is just not to act. That's not, that's not how we would think or behave. Exactly. And uh, so I would, I would suggest that if God happens upon the same attack, and if he is capable of intervening, uh, would he not have the moral obligation to intervene? I'm with you 100%. This is the classic kind of argument I make in my lectures at universities and churches and seminaries and academic conferences. Uh, you know, my little line, I'll say something like this. I'll say, um, you know, suppose my daughters are in my there's actually a little creek that runs behind my house. Suppose they're in the creek one summer and I look out and my oldest daughter has taken the head of my youngest daughter, put it under the water and is trying to kill her, trying to drown her. And suppose I'm close enough that I could intervene and prevent this. But suppose I said, you know, I'm just going to stand here and permit this. I'm going to allow this death. I mean, who am I to try to thwart the free will of my oldest daughter to save my youngest? I mean, that wouldn't be loving to take away free will. No, I'm just going to let it happen. Well, if I did that, no one would think I'm a loving father. If I had the capacity to prevent the evil, but didn't use that ability, 
then that's not loving. And the God I believe in doesn't have that ability. Okay, so uh, you've taken the sting out of some of the polemic in my blog post, so I'm going to have to go back. <laughs> oh, and, no. Um, <laughs> to go back and rework some things. Um, oh, is, yeah, is, you and I agree on this. I mean, yeah. I think this is the biggest. I, I mean, you know, I don't know your background. You and I just met, but polls say that the problem of evil is the number one reason atheists claim that they can't believe in God. And I say, Yes, they're right about that. I mean, this is the issue. And the way that most people who believe in God talk about God's power, I mean, if that's the only way to believe in God's power, then I'd be an atheist too. But I actually think there are good philosophical, even biblical reasons to reject that view of God's power. Okay. So, look, I've just got a couple of more questions on my list, and then I've got a few from the audience here. Um, okay. I'll try to be brief. In no, my I don't want you to be brief. I, <laughs> but I am, I'm rather disappointed in your last answer now because that really, that that takes out about a 20-minute tirade uh, here. <laughs> uh, so we're going to have to fill that time. <laughs> that was not what you were supposed to say. But I, I, think, um, I, think, I think we can recover. So, um, Well, bef before you ask this question, sure. uh, let me... You earlier wanted me to talk about work that I'm doing. Yes. Um, my, la my latest book is a more popular book, um, and the title is God Can't, How to Believe in God and Love After Tragedy, Abuse, and Other Evils. And in this book, I lay out this argument that God simply can't prevent evil single-handedly. So I'm not shying away from this sort of thing. This is at the very center of how I understand God. Okay. Um, I, will, I will find that and put a link uh, in the show notes uh, for that. Uh, I'm going to also ask you about another project uh, that I will mention uh, later in the program. But um, yeah, okay. So that's, that is really good. I'm glad I had you on the show, uh, if only just to clear that up. <laughs> and, good, uh, good, good. <laughs> that's that's great. So uh, seeming like I'm taking a hard left turn, I'm not. It's 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 just that you you know took this took the steam out of that line of questioning. Uh, let's talk prayer for just a minute. Um, yeah. So. What I ultimately want to talk about is what it means to cooperate uh, with God. Um, so if God doesn't act unilaterally, but he always acts, then that means that he's requiring some kind of co cooperation. I'm just I'm wanting to get some color from you on what kind of cooperation, um, what exactly you're talking about there. Uh, and yeah, I'm, I'm yeah. guessing that prayer might be a part of that equation for you. That's yeah. just a guess. Uh, so, uh, prayer, what, where does that fit into all this? Awesome question. All right. Uh, I'm going to try to make my answer brief, but I want to first look at two ways of thinking about God, actually three ways that don't make sense to me, but most people believe in. So the first one is a God who controls absolutely everything. If this is the case, then petitionary prayer, which is, I'm assuming what you mean by prayer here. Yes. Petitionary prayer makes no sense. If God is predetermined, foreordained, foreknows everything, then even the act of prayer is something God caused me to do. And it anyway makes no sense. Most people, however, have a second view of God. They think God 
uh, is can fix things single-handedly, and maybe sometimes our prayers motivates God to get off his butt and fix things. Uh, so it's almost like God is sort of sitting on the sidelines, twiddling his thumb, saying, you know, you know, if you pray and ask me, I'll actually jump in here and do something. Otherwise, I'm just going to stay right where I'm at, as if we have to beg and plead and cajole and or maybe even trick God into getting out and doing what God uh, to fix things single handedly. That one's pretty common, I think. I think it's the most common. Yeah. yeah. And it's it has so many problems, which I'm sure you see. Um, well, so the, what some, some of the people, problems it seems to be uh, it seems to be in the Bible. <laughs> you know, yes, some of the, sometimes some of the examples. Um, exactly, I agree with you. Yeah, some of the stories seem to paint God uh, as like that. Um, so what I think some people do who see the problems with those first two views, but still think we need to believe in God in order to understand the universe or whatever, have a sense of morality, they'll go to a, a kind of a deist view of God, that God's not involved, not in any sort of sense. God created, but now, you know, like Bette Midler is watching us from a distance kind of a thing. But if you have that view of God, then petitionary prayer makes no sense either, because God's not going to do anything if, you know, in response to prayer. So here's my view. First of all, I, th- I believe in a relational God who's actually influenced by what happens in the world, including our spoken prayers, our lived prayers, our lives, whatever. So God is actually influenced by what happens. And secondly, I believe in an interrelated universe so that there's consequences in the natural world by what I do. So that my, you know, I'm supposed to mow the lawn today. So going out to mow the lawn is going to have an impact not only on the grass, but my neighborhood and et cetera. So if we combine those two views that my actions influence both God and the external world, then I think prayers can actually open up new avenues, new opportunities for God to act in the world that may not have been possible had I not prayed. Can you give me an example? Yeah. So, um, let's say, um, let's say you and I uh, I've got to come up with an illustration off the top of my head here. It might not be perfect. Let's I here here you go. Let's say that some weird way I'm on a plane heading to New Jersey, and you say, "Hey, that was a great conversation. Let's meet." Uh, <laughs> I was going to say meet at a coffee shop and have coffee, but we can't do that. We'll meet in a park and converse. And as we're in the park, you say, "You know, it turns out my uncle." has the coronavirus, and is in the hospital, um, I'd like to go visit him. And I say, ah, I'll go with you. And, and I get there, and your uncle says to me, um, would you pray for me? Now, what's going to go on there? Um, some people are going to think, well, that prayer that I say just might motivate God to do something to try to fix the problem here, to cure your uncle of the coronavirus. But, of course, I don't believe in that kind of God. I think God is always already active and present. In fact, I think God wants to heal everyone and everything. But I don't think God can do it single-handedly. 
So we show up in the room and your uncle says, would you pray for me? What am I going to do? What am I going to say? Well, if I'm going to stay true to my theological views, I'm not going to pray a prayer like, well, God, I now want you to heal, you know, um, David's uncle single-handedly. But I am going to say some things in that prayer that talks about a God of love who wants to act to heal. And when I do that, I'm going, those words are actually going to affect your uncle's mind. And as you rightly, as you said earlier, I think there's a psychosomatic union in the body such that our mind has an effect on our, on our cells, etc. This doesn't guarantee he's going to be healed. It doesn't somehow turbocharge God so that God can single-handedly fix him. But what it does, is it provides, we might say, new data for God to work with in God's moment-by-moment interactions. So maybe that's, a, that's just an illustration off the top of my head. But sure. it gives you an idea of how I think what we do becomes information or data for God to use moment-by-moment moment in the world. Sure. So that, that kind of suggests how cooperation with people might work a little bit. Um, I'm still trying to wrap my mind around how God could use our cooperation because we we can't do anything. You know, we're we're, yeah. do, we're doing the best we can already, and so I'm not sure what you know how we partner with God. But uh, in in something like a cell that has cancer, well, obviously this is not a uh, an intelligent, sentient being that can cooperate with anyone. Uh, and so, what would it take for God to cure the cancer from a cell he doesn't want to destroy the cell yeah um although i'm not i'm not entirely sure why not destroy the cell if if that would uh go towards saving more lives but you know how how do humans or the cell or whatever cooperate with god to get him to to cure that yeah so two two things uh one earlier i mentioned this philosopher alfred north whitehead Mm mm-hmm And what's interesting about this guy is he rethinks the philosophical assumptions about what it means to exist. And one of the things he does is he proposes what in philosophical circles is called panpsychism. And this is the idea that even our cells have capacity for responsiveness. It doesn't mean that they have intelligence, like they're psycho, you know, they have consciousness or something like that. I'm not even. I don't even want to talk about cells having free will. But I think there's good medical reasons to think that even cells have responsiveness to their environment. And if you're someone who believes in God and thinks that God is a part of everything's environment, then there's the capacity to respond to God. Now, it's going to be a lot less, the range of of responses is going to be a lot less than a complex being like you and me, but there's still going to be some measure of responsiveness. You, you just uh, activated one of the members in our, our audience. Hi, Tara. Okay. <laughs> Down, Tara. Um, not to call anyone out. By <laughs> okay, I'm not sure if that's a, activated in a positive or negative way, but... I'm not either. 
<laughs> let, let, me just, let me just say that there will be uh, at least 37 comments within the first couple of days okay. <laughs> from Tara because of, uh, because of your few minutes talking about uh, consciousness and panpsychism. <laughs> okay, good, good, good. <laughs> um, you'll, you'll know so, who she is right away. <laughs> <laughs> so that's, that's one part of my answer. The other part is one I think uh, that you rightly point out, uh, if God has the capacity to destroy some things to save others, well, then why wouldn't God do that? And my response is that goes back to the question of what God's power is like. Does God have the power to destroy some things? And I think the way destruction would have to occur would mean that God would have to unilaterally determine or single-handedly bring things about. And so um, I'm going to deny that God could annihilate cancerous cells or annihilate the coronavirus, because if God could, you know, we get back to the problem of evil issues. So uh, God doesn't, maybe, well, I'll just stop there. I'm trying to make my answers brief. (laughs) That's okay. We're about to to enter the lightning round here. I'm... uh, Okay, good. um, What I, what I didn't... (laughs) What I didn't tell you about uh, this podcast uh, going in is that two hours is typical. Um, oh, okay, good. <laughs> sometimes they go longer. <laughs> but, I feel um, a little better now. <laughs> yeah, no, you're 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 fine. But uh, we'll we'll go into the lightning round here because I'm going to go into uh, some audience feedback uh, right now. I didn't have a lot of time to collect it, but we did get um, uh, some feedback nonetheless, and um, I wanted to go ahead and present some of that. Um, so isn't the, the first question uh, that everybody asked, even though it is literally the first example I wrote in the blog post, <laughs> the, literally the first thing, uh, we, had, we had two or three people jump up and say, wait a minute, isn't the creation an example of God uh, acting unilaterally? So this question is from everyone. Okay. Um, so uh, what, what do you say to that? Okay, and this is a lightning round, so I have to be quick, right? No, you have to be sharp. <laughs> sharp, okay. Powerful. <laughs> I, uh, what I'm about to say is going to blow some people's minds, but I'm going to say it anyway. I don't believe God created the world out of nothing, and I think the Bible supports my view that God creates out of something rather than nothing. Okay. To put it. No, no, no. I'm sorry. Stop. Just stop. Okay. (laughs) Wow. Um, Hang hang on. Um, Let me see. All right. I'll just just give me just give me a minute. All right. So I did did not see this coming. All right. (laughs) When I'm in Christian circles, like, you know, like if I'm in an evangelical circle, I'll say something like this God does not create out of absolutely nothing, and all Bible believing Christians ought to say so. (laughs) Because that view is not in the Bible, it's not in Genesis. The closest one gets is there is a a verse in Second Maccabees, which is not even in the Protestant canon, but um, in Second Ma- Maccabees there is a reference to nothing. But if you read the context, it's not absolute nothing. In fact, it says nothing is a something. 
Um, so there's no passage in the entire Bible that explicitly says God created out of absolute nothingness. That was a view that uh, emerged in about the fourth century. A lot of Christians have accepted it, but it doesn't have biblical support. And I think it's got all kinds of problems, not only for the problem of evil, but for the problem of ecological issues, consistency. It doesn't match science. Um, there's all kinds of problems with it. Tom, but you, yeah, you dig both. you dig with a big shovel, my friend. Um, <laughs> so let me let me just say this: um, last season, um, I made that same argument. No, really? I, I, yes, oh. I did. <laughs> so, awesome. Now understand, I'm an atheist, but I was arguing with my Christian yeah. hat on, um, and as to what I uh, thought the Bible actually said, I, I recognized how far. Um, uh, outside the box I was, uh, but I did not expect uh, to hear someone else come on and make the same argument. So, <laughs> good, um, good, good. Yeah, I don't, I don't know if that puts you in good company, sir. <laughs> <laughs> well, so. let me tell you. I mean, I've I've written quite a bit on this. I've got a book half written. I've got a, edited another major scholarly book, and if people actually. If people want to see some of the details, I've got a blog series on my blog about this. But one of the things I know is that even some of the most conservative evangelical scholars, a guy named John Walton up at Wheaton College is a good example. Even they admit creation out of nothing is not in the Bible. Uh, so even conservatives are now coming to see that they may affirm this view on other grounds, but you can't turn to the Bible to support it. Right. So we we agree on ex nihilo there. Uh, not something I was expecting, but uh, for the sake of the everyone who asked the question, I would still note that whether there was something or nothing, that still doesn't answer the question of whether God acted unilaterally or not. Uh, so he may not have created from nothing, but he didn't exactly ask us if we want it to be created. Correct. Uh, however, God's creating would always be in relation to something and therefore always have some kind of uh, conditions, constraints, such that God can't uh, alone decide what outcomes are going to be. So when your parents had sex however many years ago, they're participating in God. <laughs> Uh, what was that? Never mind. Heavens, <laughs> heavens, okay. heavens for sin. Uh, no, I, <laughs> my parents would never do such a thing. Uh, <laughs> oh, I see. I got my you. My mom and dad oh. that we're talking about here. <laughs> so I've seen them. Certain... There's no way. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> anyway. So, uh, <laughs> so there's certain conditions that were involved, including which sperm made it to the egg, there's all kinds of conditions involved in your mother's womb, in your own life. You've acted in ways that condition how you are, you've become who you are today. If we take that analogy and reply, apply that to God, then yes, you didn't have a choice on whether or not you're going to be born, but you have certain choices in how your life is going to sort of play out. Um, and so even God has to work with the conditions of creation that are present in each moment as God creates. Okay. I, uh, I will let everyone have at that in the comments if that was not a good enough answer for you all. 
You know where the comment section is. Uh, <laughs> so if if God is all good, this is from excuse me, this is from Brian with an I. Uh, if God is all good, why would a person uh, not want to cooperate with Him? And uh, if it is due to uh, the ignorance of that person, just not knowing that God is not uh, all good, then why doesn't uh, God clear it up uh, for them so that they would want to cooperate uh, with him? I think I know the answer that you would give uh, to this question, but I will let you have at it. Yeah, so two quick answers. Number one, God can't single-handedly give a crystal clear, unambiguous revelation So therefore, God can't sort of clear things up. There's always going to be some gray area here. Uh, I mean, if God could, then God's been doing a really bad job of uh, making it obvious to everybody about what is morally correct in all circumstances. Anyway, the second answer to that uh, slipped my mind, so let's keep going. <laughs> okay, um, that's that's the answer that I thought you would. Um, okay, that I that I thought you would give. Um, uh, so. Uh, this is Brian with a Y, uh, the sometimes uh, co-host uh, on this show and the one oh, who good. has his name misspelled. Um, Brian with a Y asks a whole series of questions. So I'm, I'm going to see if I can't condense uh, some of this. Uh, he wants to know uh, if the God can't uh, kind of, uh, we'll call that a theodicy uh, on your part, is is just something uh, that you've come up with to absolve God from responsibility? Uh, maybe how did you come up with this idea? Did, did it start from a ground up uh, place where you, uh, you know, started with with uh, root sources and so forth? Or were, did it, is this just something that, that solved the problem uh, for you, as it were? Yeah. Um, Let me answer this by saying, as I was working toward this kind of theodicy, this solution to the problem of evil, not just defense and a solution, uh, there was kind of two options that were kind of on the table that I was looking for an alternative to, and, and and I have an alternative. The one option we've already mentioned, which is that God voluntarily chooses not to control, even though God could and maybe sometimes does. The God won't prevent evil view. And I I saw the problems with that view. The other one that was kind of in the, well, I was going to say in the atmosphere, it's not very many, many people's atmosphere, but I was aware of some people who made the claim that God was limited by external kinds of forces or actors. You know, when I was a kid, it was the devil. Mm -hmm. When I got older, it was the natural laws. When I started studying philosophy, it was metaphysical laws. And these explanations sounded like God was like constrained by external forces. God wanted to fix things, but these outside factors stopped God. The proposal I have on the table says that it's God's very nature to be uncontrolling. So it's not a free decision on God's part, because God can't deny God's own nature, but it's also not something outside of God, like metaphysical laws or the laws of nature or the devil. It's God's very nature that's uncontrolling love. So 
that's where I ended up. I started probably with where everybody starts, and that is, you know, if God's good and powerful, then why is there evil in the world? Okay. So the the last two things I had on the list are things that you just kind of mentioned, uh, well, mentioned a little bit <laughs> right there. Okay. So spiritual warfare is a hobby horse of mine. Um, oh. I... Um, I have a problem with it. <laughs> so, okay. <laughs> uh, this this idea that um, there is this other uh, opposite force from God that uh, God is in conflict with, and that there's mm-hmm. there's this battle going on. Um, first of all, I I can't imagine what the battle is for. Um, that's that's not clear. I don't know how the battle is supposed to end, you know, how, how we know it's to end, what's the goal um, kind of thing. Um, I can't imagine any force that would be comparable enough to God to even have a uh, ages, eons long uh, battle. Um, so spiritual warfare is one of those theodicies, if you will. It's probably bigger than a theodicy, but I, I put it in the category of theodicies. Um, that is, that is very, very odd to me. And the other category that I, the other kind of question mark that I had on the list is, are there other theodicies, uh, that you maybe want to mention that you find interesting or maybe even a little, uh, plausible, maybe your favorite theodicies, your least favorite theodicies, the, you know, I would love to have John, um, Peckham on the show too to explore his uh now his is not quite as unique as yours i think yours yours comes from a very unique place his is more of a seventh day adventist um thing but it's still something that's not familiar to a lot of christians so i just wanted to know if you wanted to maybe talk about that or maybe some other theodicies uh that you find interesting as well and for those who don't know the the uh, peckham uh, theodicy is that God is on trial, um, and his something. Correct me if I get this wrong. His his integrity is on trial um, in his right to be God or some such, and that the court is uh, the the judges or the the royal court of God somehow, and that God is in submission to that. And there's so there's some agreements um, that the court is imposing on God uh, in this interaction with human beings. And there are some things that God can't do and that the devil can't do. I suppose he's under similar agreements, but there's some agreements of how they have to act and God can't do certain things by order of the court until the trial is over. I, I just, I find the whole idea to be, um, Beyond sci-fi, uh, and I, I just—it's—it's—it's it's, it's so fanciful. I don't even know where where to start with that. Uh, John said several times this is consistent with a biblical uh, record, but I've read the Bible many times and I've never seen anything like that. Um, so that's that was one thing. Do, are there? You know, did you have anything to say about that, or maybe some other theodicies that you find uh, noteworthy as we uh, start to wrap up? Sure. Um, you know, I don't think I'm going to talk about John's theodicy because I'm like you. Uh, it doesn't make sense to me. I don't find it plausible. And so, <clears throat> you know, 
<clears throat> excuse me, instead of uh, trying to summarize it and defend it, I'm just going to let it sit. <laughs> uh, but I do want to talk about devil, demons, and that sort of stuff, spiritual warfare. Um, my proposal is neutral, agnostic, on whether or not there's a devil and demons. If there is, then I can account for that. I just say, well, those are negative forces in creation. They don't have the kind of power and capacities that God has. So, you know, I don't believe in a Satan who's omnipresent, who's omnipotent, all that sort of stuff. I don't think anybody ought to believe in that. If, if you believe in a Satan, you ought to have a, a very different view of, of, uh, than that. But I don't, I don't take a stand on it. My, my view functions quite well with there being no demons and no Satan. But if you really think you have to have it, I can incorporate it. Um, so I suspect your intuitions and mine are very similar on that as well. Well, that, that fizzled out. Um, <laughs> we're having a hard time really fighting each other aren't we? <laughs> I, I had about uh, five or ten minutes worth of uh, diatribe for that but um, uh, we'll just set that aside for someone else um, so uh, look I'm just going to say uh, thank you for coming on to the show uh, this has been uh, I've been looking forward to this for uh, for several oh, weeks since yeah. I asked you, I, I appreciate you agreeing to come on and uh, be grilled, but also to just give a more a fuller uh, view of, of your thoughts. I know what it's like to be on Unbelievable, and the people who are listening to the show, they're thinking, man, this, this show is so long, will it ever end? Uh, when you're <laughs> on the show... Uh, it is so short. You're thinking, man, yeah. am I, am I going to get to my point? <laughs> I'm like, nope, yeah. I'm not. <laughs> it's, it's really, uh, it's one of those things that um, it, it's become cliche right now, but anyone who's been on the show uh, says how fast it is uh, mm. and how quickly the time goes by. And it's, um, you, you almost have to talk in sound bites yes. uh, to, to get, you know, anything like a point <laughs> across. And um, so I wanted to give you a chance. I thought that you had something interesting to say, and I wanted to give you a chance to uh, have an opportunity to say that uh, in a way Thank where you. you didn't have to talk in sound bites. I appreciate that, David. No problem. I still think it's strange. <laughs> don't, don't get me wrong. Uh, I'm uh, not looking for the baptismal waters right now, but I um, I do think it's interesting, and I think it's a view that's uh, worth uh, getting a hearing. And so, thank you for uh, for coming on and doing that. I want to uh, take the opportunity, uh, rather than give uh, my traditional closing thoughts, to introduce a project. Uh, that I've begun. Uh, I didn't want to talk about it too soon, but uh, I think now is a good time to start talking about it for those who uh, have started conversations with me that have ended mysteriously and are, you know, I've gone away and it's taken a while to get back to. Um, I'm, uh, I'm doing a project right now. It's a book project uh, and it's, I don't even have a working title uh, for it right now. In my own notes, I call it a Corona book. So I don't I don't have a I don't really have a, a title for it, but it is a, a project that I'm doing jointly with some people that I've been uh, asking uh, for contributions uh, from for from Christians and atheists about how they are 
uh, holding up in this time of crisis and more importantly, how their worldview uh, is holding up during this time when it's really under under fire. Uh, I personally don't believe that worldviews are worth spit if the only time they're good is when, you know, you're having a beer in a bar. Preach it. Uh, that's, Preach that's, it. that's pretty meaningless <laughs> to me. So uh, these are, these are um, the times. I think that the question that uh, Justin asked uh, both you and John at the end of the show is a telling one, and it's, it's the kind I actually like. What do you tell uh, Kobe Bryant's family, at least the family that mm-hmm. survives, um, after, after that crash? And what a lot of apologists do is say, well, the last thing you want to do uh, is is give some kind of um, uh, explanation or theodicy or anything at that point. You just want to be with them. But I would say that if your theodicy isn't good uh, at, at that time when people need it, then it's no good. I totally agree yeah. with you on that. So <laughs> I, was, I wasn't expecting the Amen Choir, but I'll take it. <laughs> so I never know how these things are going to come across. I, I have these thoughts uh, to myself in my head, and when I say them out loud, <laughs> I don't know how they're going to be taken. But I've, I've started this project to really help us to uh, explore uh, and maybe re-explore uh, some of our uh, worldviews, both Christians uh, and uh, atheists alike. Uh, how is that working out for you? Uh, what is going on uh, in your life, and what words of comfort can you give? Now, I've asked uh, Randall Rouser, uh, who is a friend of mine and a friend of the show, uh, to be a part of that, and I've asked him very specifically to make a, a vigorous case for why Christianity is the superior uh, worldview. Uh, for uh, times of crisis, and I will be uh, making the opposite case uh, for that, or at least the case that I I think that having no God view is actually uh, a better way to go during times of crisis. And Randall and I, we he's like gentleman Jonathan McClatchy. Uh, when when you get together with him, you're going to debate. Um, and uh you know we we both enjoy the blood sport of conversation i guess and so uh he has agreed to uh to to lend his uh effort to that somewhat conditionally i might add but uh i i think that uh we can count on him at this point uh justin Briarly has agreed to um a- allow me to use some of uh the uh the writings that he's recently uh written uh drew sokol has uh, agreed to come on, and Drew is uh, an, an interesting character because he's one who uh, has been going through a, a I, I don't want to use the word crisis, but a re-exploration of faith. Uh, he's He's been a, a Christian preacher for a while. He's certainly not an atheist. He's not, uh, however, he's not necessarily, uh, you know, your, your most gung-ho Christian either right now. And so he, you know, he's having to put it together uh, as he goes right now. This is a very tough time for him. And I just wanted to thank him uh, uh, specifically for uh, any contribution that he makes uh, to the project, because this is this is something that he's having to work with. Uh, Natalie Collins, uh, uh, another friend of mine, someone I just love talking to, has agreed to uh, come on to the project. So several Christians, uh, I will, uh, go ahead and mention, uh, Matthew Taylor and, uh, Sarah, uh, from the still unbelievable, uh, book has agreed to come and join me on the, 
skeptic side. And so in true skeptics and seekers format, we will have people uh, uh, promoting and or uh, talking about the Christian worldview. Some talking about uh, the atheist worldview, if that is even a worldview. Some who are uh, stuck in the middle, <laughs> some who are agnostic, some who are. Uh, so there, there'll be a lot and the essays won't just be. Uh, theological debates or anything like that. They can be theological, uh, philosophical, or just plain uh, practical. Put on a damn mask, people. Um, you know, it, it could be something as simple um, as that. But it's it's going to be useful and helpful to uh, a broad spectrum of people. I suspect the entire audience of Skeptics and Seekers and other audiences will appreciate it. Uh, a free copy will be made available when it's done, but the idea is that it will be sold on Amazon for $2.99. Start saving now. $2.99. 100% of the proceeds will go to the International Red Cross for coronavirus uh, relief. And so uh, it's it's a good effort. Uh, buy many copies. And uh, my goal is to raise... Uh, five thousand uh, dollars for the cause, and so if mm. uh, if we get there, uh, fantastic. That's going to be a lot of um, uh, uh, face masks and uh, gowns and emergency equipment, and who knows, maybe a part of a ventilator. Um, it's it's going to be a few lives saved, and if we make more than that, great. It all goes to the International Red Cross. I will profit nothing. I will simply lose a lot of sleep <laughs> as I uh, continue to uh, put this project together. I will keep you uh, informed uh, of its progress, but I wanted to start uh, talking about that now uh, because the first part is just getting getting uh, people on board to contribute words. second part, of course, is managing it, uh, putting it together, redacting, editing. Uh, and the third part is marketing. And I'm starting that part right now because it takes a lot of marketing to get people to spend $2.99. Start saving. <laughs> I'll let you know when to spend it. Uh, and uh, with that uh, said, it's not fair for me to uh, ask you this on air in front of everybody. So I'll just uh, edit this out if it doesn't go well. But uh, I uh, would like to also invite you to uh, submit an essay uh, to that project. I'm asking people to... Uh, limit their words to uh, no more than 3,000. Uh, it's somewhere between one and 3,000. The length of a blog post, post, a healthy blog post. And so you do have an interesting uh, point of view, which nobody else that I've invited has. <laughs> and, and nobody else could, could uh, offer. And so uh, I am sure that whatever perspective uh, you offer, it would, it would be... Uh, of comfort to uh, some few people. And so I want to uh, offer uh, you a spot on that uh, roster as well. You do not have well, to uh, say yes now, but if you want to, that would be great too. Well, actually, you know, I, I, I would, I'll say yes now. And um, I, I was going to mention this before we got on the air, but uh, I've had a really interesting last week. I wrote a blog about a week ago, called God's Will and the Coronavirus, in which I lay out in really easily understandable language my views that we've talked about today. And that really got a lot of attention. And so, and then just um, not long after that, N.T. Wright had this article in the New York Times uh, 
uh, on the coronavirus. And he basically, in one part of it, says we shouldn't look for answers. So I wrote a response to him on my blog, and that has just got a ton of attention. In fact, I was quoted in USA Today yesterday, I think it was, or maybe it was the day before. Anyway, so my life has like been really weird the last week trying to keep up with all of the attention these essays have. And I would be happy to, maybe I could combine the two, and because and, they're, they're not 3,000 words for sure. Maybe I could combine the two for your project. What that do you think be, of that? That'd be fantastic. Yeah. That would be fantastic. It's new to me. I haven't read them. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I suspect that would be true for a lot of people. <laughs> so if you haven't read the uh, posts that he's talking about, don't. Wait till the book comes out. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> don't read it for free when you can pay two ninety nine. <laughs> I got to work on my pitch. So. Yeah. <laughs> so with that, uh, with that said, thank you uh, again. You haven't heard the last uh, from me. Hopefully, my audience hasn't heard the last from you. Uh, I will uh, have this posted. Uh, later today so this will be fresh off the presses and you can along with the rest of the listening audience comment underneath the uh, blog post at skeptics and seekers if you won't you can add a www in front that's fine the internet's pretty smart these days skeptics and seekers s-k-e-p-t-i-c-s-a-n-d-s-e-e-k-e-r-s please tell me i spelled that right skeptics and seekers dot squarespace Dot com. If you would like to say something to me that you don't want everybody to know about, you can write me at skepticsandseekers at gmail.com. And uh, if, if, if Thomas J. Ord wants to hear from you, he can send me whatever contact information. I will be <laughs> sure to include that in the blog post as well. Uh, and so until then, thank you, everybody. Have a great, great day rest of your week.